Luke is a fellow Southeast Queenslander, although from down the Reth Downey, uh, Mount Barney way. His previous work is the rather wonderful book. There's a, you can see the spine of it here. Um, it's called The Beautiful Obscure, published by Transmission Press. On the internet, Luke is often refer referred to as, I have trouble saying this word, but I'll try and say it, okay? He is referred to as an, his, an Hispanist, okay? Which, which I means, I guess, that he's a great lover of all things Spanish. Indeed, he's the recipient of the Malaspina Award for his outstanding contribution to the development of cultural relations between Australia and Spain. His new book, and the one we're talking about tonight, is Amnesia Road, which was this year's winner of the Queensland Literary Award for Nonfiction. It's a compelling literary examination of historic violence in rural areas of Australia and Spain, while also being an unashamed celebration of the beautiful landscapes where this violence was carried out. Please welcome Luke to Mulaney. Thank you. Thank you. Now, thank, thank you very much, David. You're, you're welcome. I, I don't really know how to begin to approach this book. It's such a complex work containing a wonderful layering of ideas concerning this country and parts of southern Spain. But if I had to say what it's about in one sentence, I guess I would say that it's about memory, as the title suggests. But uh, you know, while it contains a lot of history about both these areas, it, it's not a history book. You're not sort of writing the memories for us. You're discussing the nature of memory itself. Is that correct? In, in part, yes. And I should point out straight away, I'm not an, I'm not an academic historian. Uh, I've obviously done a reasonable amount of study of history and reading of history over the years, but I'm not an academic historian, so and I wouldn't claim to be one. So it doesn't set out to be a history book. Um, when uh, When the book was... Uh, probably a, just a few months before sort of finalising everything, the publisher said, oh, you kind of need a subtitle. And I thought, oh, jeez, right, I don't know. And that, those three words, landscape, violence and memory, just popped into my head as the, as the subtitle, and it turns out that, well, that is what it's about. Yeah. I could have said, and history as well, but I guess the fact that you've got memory there indicates yeah, but a it's, historical element. But it's who, how, how memory is... Uh, is formalised in some ways because it, 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 uh, who well, gets to remember what and how that memory gets held? Yeah, well, that, that's kind of right. That's towards the end of the book, that part where, I, I mean, I get, the book basically follows two main narratives, one through southwestern Queensland, one through southern Spain. And then at the end it comes to ask, I guess, more philosophical questions about what had been revealed in those earlier parts of the book and the nature of memory and the very disputed uh, nature of, of, uh, of remembering and the, particularly the political uses to which memory is put increasingly in Australia, in Spain, in so many other countries around the world as well. Mm. So when you're starting at the beginning, though, you're talking about southwest Queensland. I mean, the mm. book is kind of, sort of fairly evenly decided, divided between a, mm. a section on southeast Queensland so, sorry, southwest Queensland. Mm. We're in southeast Queensland. Southwest, yes. So, southwest yes. Queensland, mm. and and Andalusia, the southern part of Spain. Yes. But talking about the settlement of the southwest of Queensland, mm. you you speak about how that came about, which was not really through any kind of logical or rational process. It was a bunch of people kind of moving out into that area, wasn't it? Well. Well, yes and no. In, in, in some respects, it was very, very rational in the sense of the way in which the land was taken and divided up and fenced and so on. So there's a sort of an, an inherent rationality in that process. Um, but, I mean, perhaps if I could just take it back a little bit uh, and 
you know, uh, why southwest Queensland when there's so many places in, in Australia that you could talk about? And I'm not actually from southwest Queensland, although I have travelled out there a lot. Um, I think it was, uh, was through uh, years of, of travelling through southwestern Queensland. So essentially, uh, for people who are not sure of the area the book covers, if you, if you drew a line basically from Roma down to St George, uh, and then from Rome you drew a line straight out maybe to Quilpie, and from St George you drew a line out through um, Kanamala uh, to Thargaminda, roughly, uh, and, and, and boxed in that area. That's roughly the area that the book covers. And the more that I travelled there and started investigating, and I spent a lot of time investigating in uh, researching in the local libraries in small towns there, um, the more I realised there's been so little written about this part of Australia. Uh, it's not a it's not a place which is you know trumpeted in any of the sort of the the tourism uh, cells of Australia. People never say you know go to Thargaminda or Cunnamulla as one of the great places to go in Australia or Charleville for example or or, or Roma or St George. Uh, and and yet the more I travelled in those areas, the more I was fascinated not only by the by the history or the history of uh, what had been there before European settlement. Uh, I was also fascinated and asked myself the question, why was it that this area of Australia had been so neglected and still is? You know? um, and, and whereas you, know, you can find so much written about that process of colonisation and frontier settlement and so in parts of New South Wales, Victoria, and even southwest Queensland, north Queensland as well. Out in the southwest there, there's very, very little of that covered. Um, so that was partly what, what stimulated my interest to want to dig a little bit further. It's very, very... Uh, I was surprised how little stuff there were. I mean, there, there is some really, really good stuff, but not not very much. Mm. Mm. And, uh, I mean, one of the first people to go out there was Thomas Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And you, yes. you... Let me go back to, to the question that I, that I asked there for a second because mm. we kind of went off on a bit of a tangent. I, mm. I was interested in one of the things that you spoke about, about mm. the way that it was settled, which mm. was that normally it was a group of shepherds that were sent out there yes. would have been somebody would have somebody would have claimed uh, a settlement they'd have mm. claimed uh, mm. a, a piece of land mm. from the authorities and then they would have sent out a flock of sheep with somebody attached to yes. it yes well they often staked out claims blind they, you know, they had the, the sort of the rough plans in the in a city office and and they would sort of, sort of you know draw a, a line and say, boom, 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 okay, this, that bit's for me without even having seen it. And they would then send people out there, um, you know, the stockmen or the, the shepherds or so on, who were the, uh, the kind of the humble labourers. They were the ones who were put right on the front line. They were the ones who were most exposed to violence or most likely to commit violence. Um, so as, as, as often, it's, it's a case of... Uh, the owners or the, the higher powers basically sent the underlings out to do the dirty work. And that's, that's what a lot of the, the, the frontier settlement of Australia was. Yeah. And I think that one of the, it's one of the great tragedies of the way that Australia was settled was that the people who were being sent out there really had no capacity to connect with a culture other than their own. They didn't have, they didn't have the wherewithal within themselves to do that. No. I mean, you, you give a very... Um, a good quote from Eric Rolls about it in the book. If I, if I might just read it here, mm. you say that he describes these people, the men, most yes, of them, yes. you know, which is capable, adventurous, extraordinarily adaptable, difficult, crude, vigorous, dishonest, mm. selfish, 
violent. And it's no use, he says, wishing they were different. I think, I think when you think about the, the, uh, the development or the uh, expansion of, of European agriculture through places like southwestern Queensland, it's very easy now to, uh, to simply condemn that uh, carte blanche. Uh, and one of the things my book tries to do is to try to understand uh, and try to value the extraordinary... Uh, the extraordinary strength that it required of those people. Now, that's not to condone what they did, but the conditions in which they lived, uh, in which they slowly eked out <clears throat> an existence from this, from this territory which they had absolutely no way of understanding. They didn't, you know, very, very difficult for them to adapt. They were uh, trying to sort of negotiate a way of, of being with the Indigenous people, uh, but that lack of understanding too often resulted simply in violence as a way of solving things. But I think there's a kind of, and a lot of people would not like to hear me say this, but I think there's, there's, there is an element of real heroism in what those very simple, and we say men folk because, as I say in the book, it was sort of a decade or so really before women moved out to that part of, uh, of the country in any, in any sort of number. Um, there's a real kind of heroism in the in the conditions that those people had to live through, mm. and I think without that's without you know going through the you know buying into the Aussie bush myth and all that sort of stuff. You know that's not the path that I'm going down at all. It's 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 saying that these are really simple people who lived extraordinarily tough conditions, and I think we tend to just. Uh, ignore nowadays because it's more politically convenient to do so just ignore the contribution they made to the development of the country and you know these people put up with uh, I, mean, I mean like anybody who lived you know 50 or 100 years ago the things that the conditions people had to live through that we can't even imagine nowadays well i mean i think this is one of the strengths of this book which uh, to the audience here i, I just recommend it unequivocally. I think it's an extraordinary book because the, apart from anything else, I'm going to get you to read a bit in a minute because Luke has a, um, a very lyrical turn of phrase in, in his books and, and he somehow captures something particularly about that landscape. But continuing just this thread that we are on here at the moment is that one of the strengths of the books is that that you actually have that capacity to see both sides of the story mm. in almost any situation that mm. you come upon, so that you actually kind of are singing the praises of those people who came out there at the mm. same time as recognising the, the violence. And one of the things that you talk about is, is that process of naming. Mm. Um, and there's a fabulous passage in the book where um, uh, you, you just, it goes for about two full pages where you kind of follow the wind as it moves from mm. the southeast across the country over yeah. all the different na names of the stations and towns mm. and, and places along, mm. along the way. But that's, could I just interrupt you there for a second? That, that's kind of partly fictitious. Not, not, not fictitious in the sense that all the places that are named are real, but I was... It's interesting you ask me about that because it, it, it's, it's quite a, a number of people had a number of opinions about that passage before the book was published. And I was trying to think, as I travelled through southwestern Queensland, you, 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 if you just observe the names of the stations, uh, or of the creeks or of the towns and so on, it's this real cross-section of there's British, 
There's the odd Italian word, there's the French word, there's the odd German word, there's indigenous words. Uh, and it, it kind of is this, is this cross-section of, of who has come into Australia and what the influence they've had. And, and I wanted to try a fire way, a way of capture, capturing that as a way of saying the, the great multiplicity of, of influences in this. And, and the way I thought of doing it was imagine if I was basically drawing a line from uh, Carnarvon uh, ranges uh, and sort of then heading southwest down to the Channel Country. And I, and I thought, well, how did, there's not a road which goes directly like that. So I thought, well, just imagine if a wind travelled in that direction, which winds probably don't. That's the, that's, <laughs> that's the essence of it. That's the part of it being fictitious. But it's just I imagined a wind going that... And, and just and, and describing the, just the names and just listing the names in a... In a, in a, in a it's actually about a page and a half. Now, um, uh, one editor said to me, oh, I don't know about that, you know. Um, and... and Three other people who read the book, one who was, was another editor, uh, before the book was published, said that is absolutely the best page in the book. Don't touch it. So, so that, that's how that came to stay there. Mm. But I mean, the thing that I noticed recently, I drove up central Queensland, um, and as one does on those internal highways, you go across Scrubby Creek, Three mm. Mile Creek, Twelve mm. Mile Creek, mm. Sandy Creek, Muddy Creek. Mm. You go. I mean, it, there, mm. there are these. Um, and and what I see when I see those names mm. is an incredible absence. Mm. That that that's because mm. I grew up in Scotland, and mm. if you went walking in the hills and mm. you looked even just even at the topographical maps, you would see that there was a name for every knoll, mm. every rock, mm. every burn, every tree, every every mm. anything had a name because mm. people had lived in that landscape mm. and were really familiar with it and they had spoken about it with each other. Yes. And and in that kind of mm. naming that that even even when it is as poetic as they, as you do mm. in those page mm. and a half, there is a, an incredible absence that you're talking about there. Well there is, but I mean I, I couldn't put in the indigenous names because they've been lost. So I couldn't I couldn't say that this particular curve of a river or this particular tree or this particular rock or so on was, had this name, I couldn't put those in because we don't know what they are. That, that's, that's knowledge which has been lost. Yeah. So we're left with the names which have, which have been placed there. And look, I know there's you know, one mile creek, two mile creek, three mile creek, four mile creek, et cetera, et cetera, but I don't use those. I've, got, I've, I've steered away from the prosaic and I've just, you know, yeah. I've oh, wanted to show it as a, yeah, as a, in a sense, you read the names of the stations in Western Queensland, it essentially tells you a lot about the history of the place. Yeah. And there's a number of places just south of... Uh, just, near, just outside of Surat, yeah? Between St George... Between Roma and uh, coming down to Surat to St George. Uh, and there's a number of places which are named... The names are related to all the soldiers who came to Australia in the 18... 20s who had were veterans and this links back to something I wrote about in my first book but I didn't really go into it in this book because it was wasn't quite the time and place to do it but they are soldiers who had fought with Wellington in the war for independence against Napoleon in Spain and uh, there's all sorts of you know Gipps Colonel Light uh, you know I mean th there's a whole host of 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 names it's I talk about in the first book there's these names which litter the Australian countryside and a lot of them actually uh 
um, cut their teeth, if you like, as, as, as military men, as men of engine, engineering and so on, uh, in Spain in the, yeah. 18, in the Peninsular War, 1810, 1812, 1815. Mm. Yeah. Look, could we take yeah. a break from it just to have you read to us? Just, sure. just a, sure, sure. Just a passage? I, I think Absolutely. it would be, be lovely yes, to hear, yes. hear the tone of voice, yeah? And I was, I, was, <laughs> I was gently trying to steer the conversation towards... I will talk about Spain a little bit as well because that's such an important part yeah. of, the, uh, of the book. Yeah, look, um, I mean, there's a couple of different passages suggested, but I, I thought I'd just uh, read this part. It's from right at the beginning of the book um, because I talk about this idea of the landscape and this idea of Australia being a place, as I say, of profound subtlety and very beautiful shades of quiet uh, and this idea that I take the quote from Stan Grant, but I mean many other people, Nicholas Rothwell's another one, a lot of people who have written about the Australian interior, or the Australian landscape, uh, attentively and, and uh, subtly and sensitively talk about how you can hear the landscape uh, or the land talking to them. Uh, and, uh, and I say, what is, what is said to those who listen? So this is it's just one page, yeah? So, uh, so this... <coughs> This book began in part as an act of listening, looking and recording. To begin to reconcile, not in the broader political sense but at the level of the individual, that uneasiness experienced, that wandering amid the mulga plains of southwest Queensland and along the banks of drying rivers. What happened amid such insistently spectacular landscapes and how much can we know? How to balance the beauty and the sadness, subjective and shifting though these might be. Along the back roads, another question came, persistent. What does it mean to love an area of country that has been little documented and is mostly unloved by the arriving culture that displaced the original owners of the land? This moody pocket of the continent, a territory of wiry scrub, strutting emus and jealous dingoes, this place without indulgence or excess. Silence, as a quality of remote landscape, might be only metaphorical, a cultural invention. For there is always bellow, cry, crack and whistle, a tearing of bark and branches, the snap of a metal trap, the song of an opening gate. There is always the inchwork of root systems. At midday the world is at its stillest, but never for a second leaves off its pulse. At night the world is loud with stalking and flapping sounds, incessant burrs and buzzes, the hum of artificial light, the click-bolt shot of a rifle, the crunch of dry sticks, the long call of the turning galaxy. Pumps are always at work in the middle distance, hauling water up from shrinking rivers. Parents and children talk, argue and celebrate. The ignition turns on a semi-trailer. Birds are ceaseless. If silence exists, it might be the silence of loss, pain, loneliness and endurance, a stoic silence. For the living world, though quiet, is never silent. For all its surface appearance of size and emptiness, it never stops its bark and hiss, its millimetric wax and wane, its grunt and creak and very human sigh. So about halfway through the book, mm. and, and we really haven't touched on, on how much you deal with the Aboriginal presence in the southwest mm. so far, but, mm. but I mean, I think maybe come back to that. But mm. about halfway through the book, we, we, we jumped to Spain mm. and, and its history during the mid-20th century and what mm. happened. Mm. Um, 
which led up to the Civil War and then what happened after the Civil mm. War, particularly mm. in Andalusia. And, and I wanted to, to interpolate something here for a moment, because in your earlier book, um, you call Spain your second country. Mm. Mm. And uh, in that book, you, you, you try and um, kind of lift Spain into the imagination of your reader. It's like mm. you feel like Spain has been kind of somehow forgotten or somehow mm. that the, the history of the West has... Mm. Um, tried to redirect our attention away from the achievements of mm. Spain in the 15th, well, 16th, 17th century. Well, that, that's, sorry, I was just interrupting. That's a long story, and it, I should point out it's Anglophone history has very much neglected Spain yes, for, yeah. for obvious political yeah. reasons. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And, and, but in, so in, in The Beautiful Obscure, you're kind of singing the praise of that and the mm. art and, and also mm. your kind of relationship with it. But mm. in this book, you're talking about a, a much darker Spain, aren't you? Yes, yes. Look, what, what I, what I, uh, <clears throat> there were a couple of processes that that led me. In fact, if I think about, you know, what was the little spark maybe that that originally led to this book. In the first book, I talk about a moment back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and I should just say as a as a, a sort of a backgrounder for people that I've spent about half of my adult life living in Spain. Um, uh, and and uh, and have studied its its art and its history, its culture and its language and so on for for, for most of my adult life. Um, <clears throat> but there was a moment where, in two thousand and seven, uh, under a then socialist government, uh, the Spanish Parliament passed what was called the Law of Historic Memory. It's a very very controversial law, um, or it has been. Uh, and and that was basically its its intent was to overturn all the judicial sentences of the military courts during the Franco's dictatorship, uh, and also to provide funding to go out and dig up the all the mass graves where all the people who'd been shot and anonymously buried all over Spain, so that they could be dug up and and the uh, and so people could find their grandparents and, 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 and bury them and, and so on. And that, that was sort of at a time when, when the, the last people who knew what had gone on were sort of starting to die out. Um, that was in, in late 2007. And in early 2008, we had the, um, the uh, apology to the stolen generation, Kevin Rudd, in the National Parliament. And it struck me at that time, around that 2007, 2008, these really intense debates were going on in the two countries where I happen to divide my time about how you come to terms with a bloody past. And so that was kind of what the origin of that. And I'd, I'd done a lot of work uh, over the years. Obviously, the Spanish Civil War is something which has been done to death. I'd, excuse, that's a, bad, that's a bad use of phrase, I guess. But, but it is something that has been done over and over and over and over again. And I didn't really want to focus on that. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of incidents which are representative of a much larger picture. Because, you know, people, again, in the Anglophone world, when we study about the Spanish Civil War, we tend to go through the British and American historians or we tend to go through, you know, George Orwell and Gerald Brennan and, and, and people like that. And yet there's this mass of documentation and stories written by the people themselves in Spain that... that rarely, if ever, translated. There's this huge body of experience there. Uh, and I came, I spoke with a number of Spanish historians and I was led to places in, particularly in southern Spain, because in that war, the famous battles around Barcelona were famous because Orwell talked about them. And a lot of the ones around Madrid were famous because a lot of British historians spoke about them. 
In Andalusia, which was essentially where, where, where the, the nationalist troops came up from northern Africa and started coming up on their march towards Madrid, they, they went through uh, uh, countless small villages and committed appalling atrocities in those villages as they went. And that's a part of the war which has rarely been told um, about. And I uncovered a lot of documentation and tell a number of stories about that because it struck me that this is essentially, you know, they are completely qualitatively uh, completely different events and yet this is kind of similar to what's happened in Australia. We've got this history of people being killed, being anonymously buried, being forgotten and then really for sort of 50, 80, 100 years no one talking about it and then future generations saying, okay, hang on, let's try and investigate what actually did happen here. So that's why, sorry, I'm not actually sure what the original question was, Stephen, but that's kind of why I came to, I wanted to talk about this, 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 these particular histories in Spain. And, you know, for everything that I talk about in Australia, the Spanish section of the book is probably considerably more brutal than the Australian section of the book because uh, the violence was a lot more documented. Um, there's a lot more, of course, it's also, if you say 1930s in southern Europe, there's a lot more witnesses, there's a lot more documentation than something that happened in 1840s, 1850s, Western Queensland. So in that respect, um, you know, a lot of the eyewitness accounts, uh, which I... And I try in both cases to be completely unflinching because I don't think there's no point in being euphemistic about these things, you know. And that's why there's that, there's that double side of it, uh, uh, saying that, you know, that part of the difficulty in these things is having to understand that one of the hardest things for particularly for victims and, and victims families and so on is to is to try to understand that there are humans on both sides of any of these stories and if you're going to try to understand human actions and what motivates humans and why humans behave the way they do, you have to try and understand. It's too easy to say, oh, well, it's evil. You know, that, that doesn't really explain anything at all. Yeah? So you have to try and say, well, why did these things happen? Why did these people do the things that they did? And it's always, it's always much more complex than we like to believe. And that's not a justification, but that's saying when you start digging in and reading the accounts, not only from victims, but also from perpetrators, you start to understand, gee, this is really messy and this is really murky. And, you know, the classic thing to try and do is to do is say, well, put yourself in that situation. How would you be? And you, the reality is we don't know how. We like to tell it, oh, I wouldn't have done that. You probably would have, you know. We, we can't be too sort of blasé about how we would have behaved because these were appalling times, appalling circumstances, and uh, I try not to be judgmental of people. I try to be, and I say in the book, to be unsparing in documenting and saying, look, this is what happened. Yeah. We cannot turn our gaze away from that or deny it. This is what happened. But be careful of being too judgmental because people were put in situations of extraordinary pressure and hardship and penury and, and suffering. And, you know, it's, it, we, we can't know how we would react in those situations ourselves. And I think this is one of the things that towards the end of the book, one of the, there's kind of a, a, the last chapter is mm. eponymously titled Amnesia Road. And it's about um, our incapacity in the modern age to deal with concept of ambiguity. Mm. 
mm. in some way. And it's like, and, and the book in some way sums up that quality because you, yeah. you refuse to, to condemn, well, no, that's not true. There's a lot of condemnation of, of the violence that occurred there, but there is an, an awful lot of kind of understanding about that. And a, a lot of, it's not just two sides, it's like there's 20 sides to every, to every question that you come up with. There are, there are. And, and I mean, this is the case, you know, you... you in Australian history and the history of the frontier contact between uh, European settlers and Indigenous people, it's so complicated and I think we live in a time now where everything is being simplified because that's the easiest thing to sell and, that's, and I do talk in the book about when I talk about digital media and I talk about social media and I talk about the, the, the simplification of arguments that happen on social media. You know, and, and you've only got to go on any, well, let's say on Twitter, for example, or I don't use Facebook, but I imagine from what I hear it's the same, that there's so much reductive thinking around history uh, and, and, and people are in fact encouraged. In fact, they're rewarded with likes and clicks and so on by taking an entrenched position and saying, this is where I stand and I'm going to argue this corner and you know, the more people try to reason with me, the more I'm going to dig in. And I think that's just totally the wrong way to approach history. You have to be completely open-minded. You have to be absolutely humble. You have to be prepared to find that everything you thought was completely wrong. Yeah? Um, and you've got to be prepared to do the long hours of research and reading which social media is completely the opposite you know it's, it's bing this and bing that and bing this and bing and that's it you know so so if we're to try to come to an understanding of this history it, you know I, as i say there's there is very little nuance and i think people aren't people are rewarded increasingly in the online environment for not being nuanced yeah for being as black as black and as white as white, and it's mm. just so much more complicated. And the same is in, you know, the, all, a lot of the historiography around the Spanish Civil War, um, you know, has tended to paint, I mean, <clears throat> Anglo-Saxon, well, Anglophone, I should say, American and British historians writing about the Spanish Civil War have been almost uniformly, uh, or have almost uniformly idealised the, the Republican cause, you know, because it was kind of the one in which all the young intellectuals around Europe and the United States flocked to the, you know, the, the fight against fascism in the 1930s. And so it was seen as this incredibly noble cause, um, which in some respects it was, but the Republic was, was a dark and violent place as well, and there's a lot of bastardry happened on that side yeah. as well. Although know. one of the things that you say is that that if you actually kind of start toting up, totting up the statistics, mm. clearly mm. the fascists, um, you know, they've got the numbers. Oh, they do, they do. And there's, there's no one's going to come out and say, yeah, General Franco. I mean, he was an absolute bastard, you know? yeah. uh, 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 you know, along with his you know, henchmen like Hitler and Mussolini and so on. There's no, there's no question about that. But when you drill down into the day-to-day -day events and how people interacted and so on, look, you know, I've been to places in Spain where people said, look, we were, we were dying of hunger and it was the nationalist troops, which there's a difference between nationalist and fascist, but people tend to just lump them all in together. They are the ones who came and, and helped us. And so the people in that town, it passes on to their children and their grandchildren, and they are, if you like, they fly the blue flag rather than the red flag, you know, 
and they always will. And you could go like, oh, there's a bunch of fascists in this village. Well, no, no, no. Their circumstances were that that, that side helped them out yeah. when they were starving, gave them food, or helped a family member not be shot by someone and so on. And so that sense of loyalty to that carries through generations. Now, we're kind of running out of time, but, but, yeah. but I, I, I want to kind of... There's something that I'm quite curious about, which is, you know, the actual conjoining of mm. Western Queensland with Spain. Yes. And, and, and I feel like somehow or other there's a, an elision there going on between uh, a white culture... I mean, sorry, not a white culture, a Western culture mm. coming in from, from Europe even if it was a remnant culture in terms of convicts, etc., coming into southwest Queensland and basically eradicating mm. a culture that was there, mm. and as you so clearly point out in the book, then not valuing the land that they took, mm. which is the kind of tragedy, even sort of the tragedy on the tragedy, mm. kind of, and the conflation of that with what happened when you actually had two sides of a, it's a civil war they, mm. they, you know, mm. with neighbour upon neighbour in Spain. Mm. I, I just wanted to wonder if you could speak about how, why or how you've combined, combined the two. So. Look, a lot of people have asked, you know, why, why these two places? And the simple answer is because they're two places that happen to come together in my personal experience. Mm. So it's not there's something inherently about southern Spain and western Queensland that means that they should be brought together. Uh, I think it's the first time they ever have been, and that just happens to be because, you know, that that's sort of divides across two lines of my own experience. Let's say maybe lastly, just we're talking about remnant culture and talking about the convicts, and, and I mentioned before about the the uh, not the underlings. That's not really the right word. The, the the servant class, if you like, who were sent out to do the dirty work, uh, to look after these properties right down the edge of the frontier in the, you know, the wild times of the 1850s and so on. While the others kept their hands clean. A similar thing, and very few people know this, a similar thing actually happened in parts of these, these atrocities in, in southern Spain. Franco brought his army up from North Africa and uh, there were a number of, well, there were thousands and thousands of uh, Moroccan troops, Moorish troops that he had. Uh, and they often sent them forward to do all the uh, atrocities. And so <clears throat> I was reflecting in the book also, when I, when I first lived in Spain, I was often appalled at, at the, what seemed to me coming from Australia, the, the, the racist treatment, a lot of Spanish people towards Moroccans. And you thought, is it just a Western versus a, you know, a, a Muslim thing, or is it, is it you know, sort of different shades, I won't say white versus black, because this is basically different shades of sort of brown, really, but, but um, or is there something more there? Uh, and then you slowly dig into the history and you realise there'll be a lot of towns, particularly in southern Spain, where the people were extraordinarily traumatised by the violence committed on them by Moroccan troops. And it's not that the Moroccan troops particularly hated them, they were ordered to go and do that, because they were the lowest of the low in Franco's, so they were sent out to do the really dirty stuff, like the, the bad rapes and, and tortures and so on. They sent them out, while the other people back a little bit further behind kept their hands clean. So you see that kind of thing happening again and again, and this is why I say it's, it's, it's really, really hard to... It's too easy just to judge and see it, it's like this or it's like that. So many of the 
things which are manifest nowadays have really complex and nuanced roots historically and that's yeah. what I'm trying to explore both in Western Queensland and, and in Spain. Yeah, and, and in my opinion you do an extraordinary job of bringing in so many different aspects of, of these ideas and these, this history together. So look, thank you very much indeed. Thank and, you. Um, and, uh, thanks for the chat. Uh, let's, let's, um, thanks well, everybody for coming thanks along. Thanks Luke for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>